Well, hello, family. Isn't Jesus wonderful? His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Grab your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, We enter a new section on the Sermon on the Mount today. Jesus is about to do uh, a real big deep dive on how to interpret the Holy Scriptures so that we'll flourish as we obey (laughs) the Scriptures. And he's going to give six examples of uh, proper interpretation and application of the Scriptures, which we're going to look at those in the weeks to come. But for today, before he dives in, Jesus pauses right here to give us an important Mm -hmm. lesson on his unique interpretation method. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you say that people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Help us pay attention to your word. Help us eat it, imbibe it, metabolize it, and be changed by it, that we might flourish. We ask it in the sacred name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. What what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is a record of the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached. This Uh, was the central uh, message that Jesus spread to every town throughout his earthly ministry, chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew. And Matthew has gone to the trouble of compiling all of Jesus' teachings and all of his different preaching events into like one big encyclopedia for us here. And we've said this before, Jesus is saying some very familiar things. They're going to be familiar to his listeners. But he's also saying some very new and strange-sounding things to his listeners. And he's he's calling people to, to enter into the kingdom. Come, enter into the kingdom. And all kinds of people from all kinds of cultures are actually following him. Like they're listening to this message about the gospel of the kingdom and they like it and they're following him. Like this message has legs, okay? It's having an effect on people. 
Now, because Jesus is preaching some of these new, strange-sounding things, he's starting to get a reputation. The surface question that people are starting to ask about Jesus, that's the, this is the surface question, is this. What is Jesus' relationship to the law and prophets? You've got to remember that, I mean, the Scriptures was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. So people are wondering, what's, what's this guy's relationship to the Old Testament? God's holy word. Uh, is he in line with the scriptures or is he attempting to overthrow the scriptures? That's what they want to find out about him because whatever Jesus' relationship is to the law and the prophets, that will be the relationship that all of his disciples and followers around the world will have to the law and prophets. And they're going to teach other people and they're going to spread. So this is like an important question. But it's actually the surface question. Here's the deeper uh, underlying... This is the question that's under that question. Because we all have that. That's how we actually operate. There's a question behind the question or underneath it that people are asking about this person, Jesus. And I think it's a, a question that we can identify with even today in 2022. Is the gospel of the kingdom a force for flourishing in society? Or is this a force for destabilization? That's what people want to know. See, Jesus is starting to sound like a revolutionary. Maybe even an anarchist. That's going to overthrow the old order of things, the old way that we used to live and do things. And that does not promote human flourishing in a society when that kind of message catches on. Can the church say amen? Right? And so Jesus right here is going to clarify his reputation. Because people are going to, they're starting to assume things about him and saying things about him. He's like, look, I'll, I don't want you to get twisted. This is who I am, and this is what I've come to do. Right? And he basically says, he is a revolutionary, but not that kind. His revolution is not marked by uh, Mohawks and Molotov cocktails. Okay? Nor is his revolution dressed in tactical vests and God bless America flags. Uh, anarchy can look lots of ways. This is the big idea. Jesus wants us to know that he's neither an abolitionist nor a preservationist, but he is someone who is altogether different. And he's good for society. Let me say it again. Jesus wants us to know that he is neither an abolitionist nor a preservationist, but he is someone altogether different who is good for society. And so Matthew is going to help address these uh, two false reputations about Jesus. And he's going to clarify his, the true reputation of this Jesus movement. This Jesus way, okay? So first, Jesus did not come to cancel the law and the prophets, and neither should we. That's the implication. 
Jesus did not come to cancel the law and the prophets, and neither should we. We'll pick it up in verse 17, and then we'll drop down to verse 19. Do not think. So, people are thinking things about him. He's, this is, he's correcting that. Do not think that I've come to abolish, we're going to get to that word in a minute, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come, so he's emphatic, he's saying it twice, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Drop down to 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes, and we'll talk about that word in a minute, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus was claiming to interpret the scriptures by his own authority, he was getting the reputation of being like this wild abolitionist. Right? The past was just prelude. This is the real stuff. He, he had come to, people think he's come to overthrow God's word. And he's teaching other people to do the same thing. He's just playing fast and loose with the scriptures and he's just writing up his own scripture. That's what people are thinking. And they're thinking, look, if this catches on, this is going to destabilize our, our churches, this is going to destabilize our town and our society. And Jesus addresses this false reputation head on. He says plainly, do not think of me like this. Do not think uh, that I came to cancel the law and the prophets, which is just another way of saying all the Old Testament. I mean, he's including the Psalms and Esther and Ruth and the right. It's just a way of saying the, the Bible. Don't think I've come to cancel the Old Testament. I am not teaching antinomianism or lawlessness. Anti, which means no, no law. Just no law. Grace does not mean people get to do whatever they want. Now, the word abolish that's used here in the, in the original Greek it means literally to overthrow. It's a very strong word. It means to overthrow, disregard, or throw out. Like when a judge throws out a piece of evidence in a court case, right? So Jesus clearly says he's not come to take scissors to two-thirds of our Bible and throw it in the garbage can now that he's shown up in history. Now that he's arrived on the scene, he's not saying that because that's what he says. But listen, Jesus goes even further than that. The word for relaxes, he says, when whoever relaxes even the littlest command and then teaches other people to do the same, like that's okay. In verse 19, that word relax literally means to loose, to loosen which is the opposite of bind. And, Matt, and Jesus is going to pick up on this and, and later in Matthew, right? Whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth is loosened in heaven. It's like a rope that has a tight knot. It's binding something to like a tree or something. And so loosening means I'm just going to loose that knot. I'm going to unhitch it. 
and throw it away. Let it roll down the river, right? Jesus clarifies that the law is completely binding on people who follow him. Even the so-called smallest commandment, even the littlest punctuation mark. How's that grab you? Jesus says he's not come to loosen the knot of any of it. And that if someone teaches otherwise, they will suffer severe consequences. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa! Does Jesus have our attention yet? Can you dismiss this verse? Dispatch with it quickly? I hope not. Jesus is stating in no, I mean, he's not using proverbial language. There is no like uh, parable here. He's using pretty plain language, right? He's stating in no uncertain term that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is still binding on people in his kingdom until the end of the age when he returns. Now, we're going to get to what he means by fulfilled in a minute, but I just want to let this part land on us. Let it sink in for a minute. Because that might be making you feel uncomfortable and you're trying to do some gymnastics to wiggle out from that. Let it sink in for a minute. See, one of the accusations that Jesus' followers got tagged with back in the day, and we still get tagged with this today, is with being antinomians. Which just means lawless. We get tagged with people that are living without a law. Now that Jesus has come. And we can do whatever you want, and he'll make it okay. People, we get tagged as people who just literally ignore and disregard the Old Testament as irrelevant, don't need to preach through it, don't need to study it, don't need to read it. Now that Jesus has come. In fact, I mean, truthfully, guys, I grew up in a church that taught that. They taught this really deep division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the go-to verse that everybody went to, at least in one of the churches that I grew up in, this was the knockout verse. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Paul in Romans. And we in our church, we love that verse. That was the knockout verse to anything you would say to us about the Old Testament. It was... uh, it was a verse that was used in such a way to justify canceling everything that God said in the scriptures, in the law or the prophets or the Psalms, about how to rightly use his law. And the result, and this didn't happen like overnight, but over the course of years and years, I got to sit back and see this. It created a culture in us. It created a culture uh, in the spiritual lives of people that was would, best described as spiritual anarchy and decay. What do you mean I gotta read my Bible? Show me where it says I have to read. That's legalism, man. You're being legalistic. What do you mean I gotta show up on Sunday? You're being, you're being legalistic. That's law. And I'm not under law. I'm under grace. That was always the response. And we love to trot that one verse out. The imperative, we'd say things like the imperatives of scriptures or the commands, they don't really matter as much to God. It's the indicatives that matter, who I am in Christ. And if I can just get that figured out, then I'll obey this, 
the commands down the road naturally. And guys, you just cannot lead people like that to flourishing. You can't lead them. You know why? Because they found a canon within the canon of Scripture. They become a law unto themselves. And so you can't lead people like that to the good life. Here's the point. Whatever relationship to the prophets and the laws uh, as followers of Jesus that we have, whatever that relationship is, it cannot be a relationship that cancels it. It cannot be a relationship that takes a scissors to two-thirds of the Scripture and say, I don't need to follow any of that or read any of that. Okay? Jesus does not allow us to adopt the reputation of being abolitionists and attach the name of the Lord to that. He's real clear. Don't do that in my name. It's not what I'm saying. And so the second false reputation that he's going to address is this. Jesus did not come to merely keep the law. And neither should we. You're looking at me funny. Did I just contradict myself? Well, let's unpack this. Let's go to the scripture. Right here, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds not somebody's righteousness. Whose? Yours. He's talking to you. He's talking to Chad. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will what? What's it say? Never. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a heavy three verses, isn't it? It's important. So listen, after hearing Jesus give so much time and such emphatic language to, you know, he's not coming to cancel the law, you would think that logically Jesus is all about rigorously upholding and keeping the law, right? That's what you would think logically, but then again, once again, Jesus surprises us. He goes, uh-uh, not so fast. So truly, he's not... Uh, uh, this uh, abolitionist. He's not a progressive. Just forget the past. That's all holding us back and regressive, and now we've got to go progress into the future. Uh, he's not that. But he's not, he's not a preservationist either. He's not a conservative. You see, the old ways are the best ways. Jesus is not going to let you and me put him in our categories, is he? Don't you love Jesus? He messes with us. He's the king. Who are the scribes? Who are the Pharisees? The scribes, they were this group of Jews that meticulously studied the scriptures. They went to specific schools and they sat under respected professors to get the very best understanding and interpretation of God's holy word. They literally devoted their lives to studying the scriptures day and night. And what so-and-so said about that scripture, and what so-and-so said about the other so-and-so, and what they said about the scripture. And not only that, but the scribes also gave application to the common people. So the average Jew that wasn't able to go to the, you know, the temple or the synagogue even or whatever because they were doing other things, they would come to the scribes and go, okay, how do I put this into my life? Like, what does that verse mean in my life? And the scribes would interpret and apply it to them. So they functioned much like pastors do today. Okay? 
Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they're this very, very small denomination within Judaism that had this outsized influence on all of society. Small group, massive influence on Jewish society. They were utterly devoted to obeying the scriptures. Scribes would interpret and apply, and the Pharisees said, we're going to, as a group, we're going to commit to live that out. We're going to literally live that out. Because our people have morally fallen away. And we're going to show them the way back to moral righteousness. They were devoted to obeying the scriptures in absolutely every regard. I mean, they were incredibly good moral people, great fathers, generous to the poor. Okay? Uh, they were the good guys in town, all right? They're the bad guys when they meet with Jesus, but like for everybody else, like historically, they were the good guys. They're the people that you would look up to. They were like the Ned Flanders of the first century. You got that slide, Drew? Yeah. They were the Ned Flander neighbors, the Simpsons. I oakley dokely neighbor, you know? Can I give you a ride? So think of that when you think of the Pharisees. Squeaky clean. Listen, here's my point. You wanted the Pharisees to be your neighbor because they'd always cut the grass and always take out the trash and they'd keep the noise level down. They were good people. You want Pharisees to be your neighbor. You would want them on the school, school board because they would make sure the good curriculum got taught to the kids in school. They wanted them owning the business because they would always use fair measurements and weights. And how does that make a society better? They were committed to obeying even the most minuscule city ordinance and always doing the right thing. And they had a reputation. And they didn't just talk about it like they literally did this, guys. They did it. They did do it. And they had a reputation to be the most religiously uh, righteous spiritual people in the society. They were, were nothing less than the living examples of what other ordinary Jews were supposed to follow in being righteous. What's righteousness? See that guy over there with the robe and all that? That's the Pharisee? That. I said all that to say this. If Jesus was merely a preservationist, a conservative, okay, we would think that he'd point to the Pharisees or maybe the scribes and say, your righteousness should be like theirs. Right? Your righteousness has to be like theirs because they're like a 10 out of 10. They're experts at knowing the Bible and they're experts in actually literally obeying God's word. You'd expect him to say that if Jesus was merely a preservationist, but he doesn't, does he? He doesn't do that. Jesus says, no, your righteousness must exceed those guys. And if your righteousness does not exceed them, you will never enter the kingdom. He's very emphatic about the point he's making here. He's just as emphatic about the point he made previously. Okay? So what's he doing here? What is the point he's making here? When Jesus makes this statement, listen, he is declaring the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is inferior. It's not good enough. In what way? 
it's not good enough for us to look at and try to imitate. Not only is their righteousness inferior, but he's also declaring it inadequate. It is inadequate to follow, uh, to f- allow them even to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that had to probably ruffle their feathers. How do we know that's what he means? Well, you have to go listen to the prophets. You know, like Jesus said. <laughs> and that's how you know that's what he means by this. Go listen to the prophets. You cannot truly understand and you cannot truly keep the law of God without the prophets to interpret God's law for you. Because that's what they did. They said it applies like this and it looks like this and it sounds like this and it feels like this. Which, by the way, is exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do in Jesus' day. They were trying to live the law without hearing the prophets. And that's exactly what Israel did in the days when there were prophets. I'll give you an example. Isaiah 58, verse 3. God says, my people say, why have we fasted? Why have we, you got that next slide there? Why have we fasted? And you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're talking to God and then God answers. Here's why. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your employees your workers that's why i don't notice your fasting god is saying to his people he's saying that his people are going through the motions of fasting they're doing the obedient behavior of righteousness. They're going through the motions of fasting, but it's not from a heart that loves God. And what's the evidence? Because they don't love their employees. They don't love their employees. So how can they say they love God who made their employee? God says, I see that. That's what I see. Or we could go to Amos 8, 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, and this is their justification, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And when's the Sabbath over so that we may offer wheat for sale? that we may make the ephah small. That's a measurement of wheat. So that we can make the ephah small, but the shekel great. And deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for gold? Uh Uh-uh. This silver. And the needy for a pair of shoes. And sell the chaff of the wheat. The bad stuff. God's people, are be, be, their external behaviors are righteous. They are observing the Sabbath. They are going to worship services. But, but what their heart really wants while they're in the worship services is to make as much money as possible as soon as church is over. And so they say their prayers and they sing the songs and they go, uh-huh, when the scriptures are read. But what's their heart want? They want to make the ephah small and as much money as they can. 
and they're going to buy the poor for silver. They're going to pay their employees the least amount that they could pay them because they know they need, they'll take whatever they can get and maybe just a pair of shoes. And that's what they're doing while they're worshiping him. Even though they're doing all these obedient activities, on their minds, this weekly Sabbath worshiping of God is getting in the way of the good life. Obeying God is getting in my way of having fun. It's getting in my way of flourishing. Or you could go to Isaiah 29, 13, and the Lord says, because this people draws near with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Right? While their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. He's saying that his people obey the letter of the law. They observe the Sabbath. They keep the fast. They keep the feast. They bring God their tithe. But it's not because they want to express their love for God. It's just external righteous behaviors. And they think they're righteous. They think they're good with God. They think they're getting in. And God declares that their righteous behavior is not good enough. Why? Because they haven't done all the right things? No, they're 10 out of 10. It's, their, it's not good enough because it's not wholehearted. What has Jesus been talking about since the beginning is wholehearted, right? Pure in heart. He's saying the same thing. This is what Jesus is saying in our text today that we read. Jesus is speaking like a prophet. He was, teach, he was speaking like a sage and a teacher. Now he's speaking like a prophet. Listen, he's saying this, not keeping the law, that'll keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Not obeying anything God says, that'll keep you out of heaven. But merely keeping the letter of the law, he said, that'll keep you out of heaven. What? <laughs> Listen, Jesus is calling you and me, he says, to a greater righteousness than even the Pharisees had. It's greater not in degree. Like we got to be an 11 out of 10. It's not a great, listen very carefully. It's not a greater righteousness in degree. It is greater in kind. Did everyone hear me? This is what Jesus came to do. To transform you and I into people that live in a way that exceeds the law, transcends it, doesn't merely preserve it, and it definitely doesn't cancel and cast it out. It goes deeper. And that's our third point. Jesus came to exceed the law and to help us do the same. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. But what did he come to do? He's very clear. I have come to fulfill them. And listen, we can't interpret fulfill as just like code word for abolish. <laughs> okay? Because he's putting those in opposition to each other. It can't be just another way of saying the same thing. The grammar doesn't allow for that. Listen, so if Jesus isn't a progressive abolitionist, and if he isn't a conservative preservationist, then who, who the heck is he? What is he? Well, you and I got to have a whole brand new category that we have to make. 
to put Jesus in. He's a transformationalist. And yes, I made that word up, but it's a great word. He's a transformationalist. Okay? Listen, Jesus says he came for the purpose of fulfilling the law and the prophets, which again is just another way of saying all the Old Testament. When we hear the word fulfill, what do we typically think of? In American English language, what do we typically think of? We tend to think of terms of like completing an order at a restaurant and then where we're done with the order, right? I complete, I fulfilled it means like there are five things on that breakfast order, coffee, toast, scrambled eggs, and a, you know, an egg McMuffin, and I served all of it and now I've completed the order. It's fulfilled. And I throw it up and I throw it away which is just another way of saying I abolished it, right? And there is kind of a sense of that mean, like to complete it when Matthew uses the word here. But if you look at how Matthew's used that word, uh, the word fulfilled, in all the previous chapters of, of, of his gospel, it really means something a little bit different. And, and he's the one that defines the words. We don't define it for Matthew. Matthew defines his words, how he uses them. For, I'll give you one example. When Jesus, in Matthew, when Jesus is baptized, he says it must be done for what reason? To fulfill all righteousness. Oh, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, right? Listen, there is nowhere in the Old Testament that predicted the, God's Messiah had to be baptized in order for him to complete the order of being God's Messiah. That wasn't a requirement. The Messiah has to get baptized by John the Baptist. It's not there. See, it can't, that word can't mean that. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg, I think, is really helpful in helping us understand what fulfill means when Matthew uses the word. He says this, quote, Fulfillment of Scripture, as throughout chapters 1 through 4, refer to the bringing to fruition of its complete meaning. Here Jesus views his role as that of fulfilling all the Old Testament. This claim challenges both classic Reformed and dispensationalist perspectives. It is inadequate to say Either that none of the Old Testament applies unless it explicitly is reaffirmed in the New, or that all of the Old Testament applies unless it's explicitly revoked in the New. Here's the key sentence. He says, rather, all of the Old Testament remains normative and relevant for Jesus' followers. See 2 Timothy 3.16. But none of it can be rightly interpreted until one understands how it's been fulfilled in Christ. Every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of Jesus' person and ministry and the changes introduced by the new covenant he inaugurated. Close quote. I know that's like pretty thick and dense and nerdy and all that, but we need to go there. We need to hear this. It's going to affect the rest of the book of Matthew. The word fulfill in Matthew means to fill fuller. Okay? Fill, not complete, fill fuller. In other words, to reveal the ultimate goal or to reveal the ultimate purpose of something so we can properly use it. If Jesus came not simply to complete everything the law and the prophets required, uh, uh, Jesus came not to simply complete everything the law and prophets required and then therefore renders it useless. It has some use. 
law brings us to repentance, right? And it shows us what pleases God. Rather, Jesus came to show more fully the proper usefulness of the prophets and the law and the Psalms and all that, which is to point us to what true righteousness really looks like in real life. Which is just another way to say that they're pointing us to what the true flourishing life really looks like. Jesus teaches that the kind of righteousness that grants us and society deep lasting satisfaction exceeds mere external righteous behaviors. It's the kind of righteousness that comes from a deep love for God and a love for our neighbor. Greater righteousness is wholehearted obedience. It's from the heart. That is how you apply the law and the prophets to your life until the end of the age. Here's the problem with this greater righteousness, this obedience that comes from the heart. Uh, My heart doesn't fully love God. (laughs) My heart doesn't really want to obey God all the time especially when it comes to my neighbor. (laughs) I'm just being honest. Um, If the kind of righteousness that's required of me to enter and flourish in the kingdom is a kind that comes from a loving, devoted heart, then I really, really, really need a new heart. In fact, I must have a completely different heart implanted in me in order to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And isn't that what the prophets have been telling us for centuries and centuries, though? Look at Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law where? Within them. I'll throw it away? No. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or we could hop over to Ezekiel 36. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, greater righteousness according to the prophets and according to Jesus is obeying God from the heart. Why? Because God has given us a new heart that loves him. We want to say thank you to this God who has saved us. We want to please this God who has poured out his love on us. And God goes, I've got about 10 ways you could do that. You don't have to guess. This this would make me smile. (laughs) We're like, thanks. Right? What does it say in first John? And we do his commandments. And his commandments are what? Not burdensome. They're a joy now. Whereas before they were a burden. Now they're a joy. Now I like it. You've got to have new heart, a new heart to like that. And how does this new heart get planted inside of a person according to these prophets? 
only by the Spirit of God. God says, and I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, and then you will do that, right? Which is to say, it's only by God's grace that you and I get this new heart. It's only by God's grace that his Holy Spirit comes to reside in us, and we get a new wanter. And we look at all this stuff in the Old Testament and go, that's not burdensome. I kind of, I want to do that if that makes God smile. Jesus said the very same things, but he uses different words in John's gospel to a Pharisee of all people named Nicodemus. That's no accident. And I, at least for me, I'll never read this part of Matthew the same way, when I, or that part about Nicodemus the same way after understanding this. They're having the same conversation. What's my, inter- what's my relationship with God's law? Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again, or else what? You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, right? It's got to exceed this. You must be born again. Now, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it goes. You don't have any control over when the wind's going to come upon you, right? But you know when it's come upon you. He goes on and said, and so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And you got to be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom. Listen, Jesus is a transformationalist. He has come to transform how we apply his law to our life, and he has come to transform us into people that want to obey him from our very heart, from our very core. And this kind of obedience will bless us. It will cause us to flourish. See, the good news of Jesus is that he has promised to give us this new heart that wants new things. He will put, he's promised that he will put his spirit within us to enable to do what pleases him. We don't do this on our own might. We don't do this by our own willpower, but by the spirit, says the Lord. So what? So ask him to help you want to keep the scriptures as interpreted by Jesus, not the letter of the law, but the deeper spirit of the law. Ask him for the power that you need to love him with all your heart and to love your neighbor from the heart like you should, and he will grant it to you. That's his promise. He'll grant it to you. This is the Jesus way. Let's pray. Almighty Jesus, we love you. You're a a wise teacher. You're a mighty prophet. And more than that, you are Savior and the Son of God. And Lord, I pray that you'd show us in our lives where we are trying to put you into a corner, either a, a, a progressive abolitionist or a conservative preservationist, or and reveal where we're trying to be that, because that's just simpler. Lord, you're a transformationalist. You've come to transform our heart. And that only happens by your grace. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would blow on every soul in this room. Blow where you will and enter into people's bodies.
and change our thinking, change our wanter. Help us when we open our Bibles to see you and to want to please you because of all that you've given to us, all that you've done for us. It's in Jesus' good name we pray, amen.